If you do yeah, a sure. Google search for Swift style, it brings up a Taylor Swift video. <laughs> I'm not surprised about that. <laughs> Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 181 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest. That's Erica Sadun. 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 I should have asked. I, I, I almost did. Anyway, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hi, I'm Erica Sadun from Denver. Denver. That's not that far away. Do you want to give us a brief introduction? I know you have a book and a few other things that you've done. Let's see. I program, I write about programming, and I spend my nights trying to take over the world with two small lab rats. Awesome. You're the silent third partner in the show, I see. (laughs) I am, or at least that would be what I would want to be if... I were actually engaged in world domination, so sure, yes, I go with that. I'm guessing if you were involved, the shows would go better for them. I don't think that's necessarily a valid assumption. <laughs> the joy of the show is the fact that it will never happen. Well, we should probably tell our audience that we're talking about Pinky and the Brain. Yeah. Where two, two One is a genius, yeah. the other's insane. That's right. Yeah. You, want, you want to sing? You want to sing the intro? <laughs> they're laboratory the mice. Their brain, wait a second, it's their genes have been sliced. They're dinky, they're pinky, and the brain, 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 brain. There we go. I've, I've never seen that show. Oh. Uh, Animaniacs is, and it's one of the segments they have on that show. It's all on Netflix. My kids love that show. Definitely. It pick, definitely pick worthy. Yes. So, I watched it. It came out when I was in college, and it's good for adults. It's good for kids. It's good stuff. Yeah, I think I was a teenager when it was out. Anyway, we, we did bring you on to talk about from Swift from 2 to 3 and Swift style. We've talked quite a bit about Swift from 2 to 3, so or, or at least people moving from Swift 2 to Swift 3. So I'm wondering if you can just give us sort of the elevator pitch for your book about that, and then we'll go dig into style and Swift style. I think that moving code from Swift 2 to Swift 3 is probably going to go down in history as the biggest pain point in the evolution of the language. Because so much happens, much change. It was the one shared huge trauma for anyone who was already in the language and trying to develop in the language. Gotcha. And given that it's the day after election day, it's followed very closely by having to choose between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. But anyway, too soon, too soon. Too soon. I know. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So, so yeah. So I wrote that book to help. I don't think it will help you with, you know, U.S. elections, but it will <laughs> certainly help you understand not just what changes have happened in the language, but why they changed and how you can refactor each part of your code. So it's a very practical and pragmatic book. Gotcha. Uh, where do so we pick it up? It, since it's a self-published book, it's available only on iBooks and at Lean Pub. And the reason I work with those two vendors for my self-published books is they allow me to update whenever I feel like it. So if anybody finds an error, a problem, whatever, I can push an update that day. 
All right. Well, let's talk about Swift style here for a minute. One thing that I see with a lot of systems and a lot of programming languages that I've worked with is that people come out with style guides because there are so many different ways to write something and they like to see something consistent in the way that the code is formatted. Are, are there particular problems that your approach to Swift style helps people avoid? I have to step back a little and explain about the project. Okay. And it's less a Swift style guide in and of itself and more discussion of Swift style. So wherever there are multiple approaches, I do try to describe different ways different developers approach style challenges and what are the strengths and weaknesses of each approach. And the reason I do this is that I don't think you can write one universal guide that applies to every individual, every working group, every situation that comes up. And people's needs vary by project, and they also vary by the kind of house that they're working in, whether it is a contracting house, whether it's all in-house work, whether you're a single person, you know, house or whatever. Each of these has their own challenges. And there are certain things you can do with style. The reason you do a style guide is to enhance readability, to enhance safety, to try to make your code consistent and more maintainable, to allow anybody who is trying to validate or audit code to make that job easier for them and so forth. There's a lot of things that style does to promote all these goals. And so what my book does is it goes really, really in depth in terms of what are all these challenges in Swift and how do you approach them? So when most developers are thinking of a style guide, this is the thing that we just argue over spaces, new lines, where do you put this brace? Where do you close it? Mm -hmm. How do you do things? Hungarian notation. It sounds like you're getting into something quite a bit deeper if you're talking about different types of houses being different fit for different styles. Is that, is well, that I do start with spacing and bracing. Okay. Because, you know, that's a reasonable thing. It is a reasonable approach that, you know, people should be thinking about. I know, but I want to be right. Language. But when you do Swift development, it is a ridiculously top-heavy language. As soon as you start working with defaulted arguments, when you start working with generics and constraints and all the things that go into a Swift method declaration, you can end up with a function or a method that's like 10 lines of declaration and one line of code. That's a real thing that happens. And because of that, the, the, the bracing style you adopted for, you know, C, C sharp or for, you know, other languages out there, they, they may no longer work quite as well in the Swift scenario. For example, you may be, you know, a one true brace person and find that a more hybridized style 
works better for you when you're developing code. You should probably explain the one true brace. In the beginning, came to us and they gave us, you know, the one true brace, which is an opening brace at the end of the, the declaration line and a closing brace that co-aligns with the beginning of the declaration line. So it's in column number one. The opening brace can be however many, however far across to the right as it needs to be. So what you end up with is code that has more vertical compactness. And it's really the most adopted style. It's, it's almost universally used in Apple. It's the most common style for Objective-C. It is the most style you see for bracing in general. So when you said hybrid approach, explain what you mean by that. Well, if in the beginning, you know, KNR gave us the one true brace, there was Allman, who is famous for, you know, BSD style, which has co-aligned left-hand bracing. And that's a carriage return before the opening brace. And what that does is lets you visually scan between opening and closing braces. It's a much more expansive bracing style, but it's one that immediately lets you visually understand where a bracing scope starts and ends. And it's very handy for doing that kind of scoping view. And when you start working in Swift, if you mix up the almond style for your external braces with, you know, one one true brace for pretty much everything else, what happens is you create a much more readable result. And it helps counterbalance any particularly heavy declarations that would otherwise be unreadable because what happens is the code inside your scope tends to flow into the declaration and it becomes quite confusing. So maybe you can provide some examples of how to how to mix the almond and the, the one true brace style. Like what would be an example of something how they are intermixed? Well for the most part I just stick with one true brace. But if you have a function or a method which has six lines of declaration before the first line of code, if you move that brace down into the almond position, what it does is it creates a single line of space between your implementation and your declaration. And that just does wonders for Swift readability. I agree. That's one thing I've always liked about the almond style. I think I started off doing the K&R way, and I think it was probably the Microsoft C++ libraries, I noticed the almond style. And if you do C sharp, that's probably the default. And that was always very readable. You always knew where it started, where it ended. Mm-hmm. And I gradually had that beat out of me in the Apple world. And it was swift. It was, it was just final. It was just not how things were done. So I've gotten used to the you know, K&R style. And I, I forgot my point, but I, I agree. It's very, uh, very readable. I think that's one thing that we sacrifice, especially if we're, have a long method signature where we're putting different declarations on each line. 
you can it can be tough to see where the the actual code begins. Mm -hmm. And Swift is particularly susceptible to having these really complex declarations. It has so much that happens before the implementation that knowing that if you're dealing with a, a more complex system, that you know, oh, I can do this, and I can suddenly make an improvement just by adjusting one particular point in style, I think that's a really good tool in the arsenal of anyone who's doing coding as you know their work. Definitely. I think style is important for a lot of ways, and some of them you mentioned earlier, but just having not to think where you're putting each space, each new line, each brace, each opening, closing. That's things you can, if you work with a code base for a week or two, it doesn't matter what the code style is, you can get used to it. And you're not thinking about that thing. You're thinking about your code and the problems you're trying to solve. The example I use, I actually have two examples. The first one is if you're sitting across from a beautiful person of whichever gender you particularly desire, and in that person's tooth is this big wad of spinach, you're not going to be enjoying yourself and you're not going to be paying attention to what that person says. All your focus is going to be on the thing that's out of place. That's a good point. Like the spinach itself, not harming anything, just a little bit weird. Good style lets you focus on things without being pulled out by things that aren't relevant to the meaning and semantics of what you're writing. And the other example I give is that if you have a window and the window has a streak on it, again, you fixate on the streak of the window instead of looking through it to the vista that's beyond it. And good code should be a clean window. It should let you see the meaning and intent behind it. You shouldn't be thinking about the craftsmanship of the code. Earlier, you mentioned the uh, the long declarations, like uh, a function definition with generics and everything. Or, mm-hmm. and I often struggle with how to format these, and Xcode really doesn't help much in the matter um, with its auto formatting. You have to do it all manually. So I was wondering, uh, what do you recommend for for those long declarations? Do you do you split them up in separate lines? Do you align everything? How does how do you what do you recommend for that? I really do split things up a lot. I think a where declaration should be on its own line. And the where is where you add constraints to your generics. If arguments have defaults, I put each argument on a separate line. Because if you have a lot of defaults, what happens is you may have an external label, an internal label, a type, and a default. And that takes up a lot of horizontal space. So if you put those arguments on individual lines, you can pull out much more information when reading through that. I try to keep any information before, after the name of the function or method, and before the opening uh, parentheses for the arguments. I try to keep that very, very short. And if I can't keep it short, I put it on a separate line. What about line width? What what is what's the recommendation there? 
Well, with line width, you can do what the standard library group does. They follow LLVM standards. And for them, it's an 80 character width. They use two space indentation, and I find their stuff feeling very, very cramped. I personally prefer four space indentation. I don't use tabs, and it's a thing. I don't really care what spacing you use. Just whatever you use, be consistent. There are some houses that won't go beyond 120. I personally think that Xcode does a really good job in terms of wrapping. And unless things need to be pulled out to draw attention to them, to make them different in terms of how you read through them, I generally say just let Xcode do its thing. Let Xcode handle the wrapping unless you are deliberately moving something to a new line to give it more prominence. I find that really interesting because... In a lot of ways, I tend to write mostly utilitarian code. And so I'm not thinking about, oh, does this need more attention? I mean, I do that when I'm writing fiction or, you know, doing some other form of art, right? It's, okay, how do I embellish or accentuate this important thing? But I just never considered doing that with the code where, oh, I'm going to put this on its own line so people will see it, where it will call it out. A lot of times I call things out with a comment, but... It's, it's interesting to me to think about, okay, as I'm declaring the signature of this function that I would put a new line in there to call attention specifically to this argument or this uh, default setting for the argument or anything else. I try to be very cautious with comments. I try not to make everything so commented that you can't see the code. and. When deciding whether to use structure or to use a comment, I ask myself, am I doing this to emphasize what this does, or am I doing this to try to add an explanation of why it's there? And for me, comments always explain why. And structure, just basic structure, naming, and things like that, those should be explaining what, the roles. Well, that's a good point. Definitely try and make your code self-explanatory about the what is happening, whatever language constructs. And, you know, I'll add a comment to do something similar to what you talked about with the why. And, you know, the why is like, I'm doing it this way. You know, I'm not an idiot. There's actually a reason for it, but it might be a little bit surprising why I did something this way. But I Mm -hmm. think, yeah, definitely let the what be self-explanatory. I've worked with code styles where you commented every line, even down <laughs> to incrementing ii plus plus. Increment the the counter. You know, like okay, that's that's pointless. It's not only pointless, but what it does is it devalues the comments that really are important. Because when you're given this cognitive overload of too much information, it keeps you from recognizing what's important. And code readability is the whole point of adopting good style. Everything you do should be in service of future-proofing your code for reading it, for using it, for maintaining it, and eventually for expanding or correcting it. That's a good point. I never 
put it together, but if you're commenting something that's explanatory, self-explanatory from the code, you have duplicated logic. And that's two things that you have to keep in sync when you change one thing. And people, a lot of developers aren't changing the comments when they need to change. They'll change the code and leave the comments because they think it was important. And then you left up with a comment that doesn't match what's actually happening. So that's a good point. Yeah, my comment crammed in there when it's like, if you change this, like if you change this formula or you change this variable, then you're going to see weird behavior because it actually regulates this thing. And so it's it's an explanation that's kind of a danger, Will Robinson, instead of an actual, mm-hmm. um, this is important. You should know that this is important. A comment should create a, a breadcrumb trail design intent and what approaches you have tried and why you made a particular decision. Yep. A good comment says, I'm doing it this way because it's it augments the code. It explains the reasoning that you can't pull from just looking at the final product. And Swift, like most other modern languages, uses two kinds of comments. There is an inline comment for documenting that design history. And then there are the API comments that are similar to um, Doxygen, Heterdoc, Javadoc. The Swift version of these creates a way for API consumers to provide at the point of use documentation using standard markup. And what are, what are your feelings about those kinds of comment systems? Because to me, in a lot of cases, it feels like so much cruft. And I'd rather see the documentation generated somewhere else. But at the same time, those comments being right there with the code makes it easier to change the documentation with the code. And so I can definitely see a trade-off there. You have to, first of all, decide who is going to consume this code. If you are just writing something in a playground... Honestly, when would you ever need API documentation for your APIs? If you are writing a library that's going to be consumed not only within your working group, but your entire house or even, you know, be distributed as, you know, a framework, say, for people who use your services, I think you owe it to those users to spend a significant amount of time making your API consumable and expected. If your API, for example, has non-obvious complexity, you should be telling people about that. Things that look like they're, you know, O of 1 complexity, but are in fact are O of N squared. You, you don't want to surprise people with that because Unless that's documented, what you've done is you've basically distributed a known bug. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, let's take a break and earn a little money for the show by talking about Hired.com. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. They put you in control, fill out an application, and then top employers apply to hire you. Throughout the process, your dedicated talent advocate will also have your back, providing unbiased career coaching to help you put your best foot forward with potential employers. 
and Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And they help people find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. So if you're open to relocation, you can let them know, and they'll work that in too. Finally, if you use our link, you can earn double the normal hiring bonus. The normal hiring bonus is 1000 bucks, and they give you 2000 instead. So go check them out at Hire.com slash iFreaks. I'm curious, what in your discussion of style do you think is the the hardest decision for people to make when they're looking at how do we want to structure this so that it best meets whatever goals we have, be that communication or readability or something else? You know, that's a really good question. And the thing is, I don't think there's any single decision point beyond the big one, which is I am going to carefully think about my style to create a consistent experience for consumers of my code. I think that's the one thing you either get past or you don't get past. After that, a lot of it is going to be things like, do you always include self or do you allow you know self to be inferred? Do you left align colons or not? Do you approach certain things like iteration using, you know, for in versus for each. And, you know, there are significant advantages and disadvantages to that. Let me give you a particular example. And before I tell you my guidance on it, let me just kind of throw it at you. When you're declaring a um, static function or a static method, you know, the, the member that is, you know, basically associated with the type rather than associated with instances, do you declare it public static or static public? I always do public static, but what are the options or what are the alternatives and why? It's either static public or public static. You can't make it simpler than that. There we go. And, you know, say why you choose that style over the other. So when I do it, just do the, the access modifier first, because that's what I'm used to seeing public, private. Uh, the first thing I do if I scan a file is like, okay, what's public? What's internal, you know, protected, private? Just so I know what the interface is if I'm changing something. So for me, I, I'm typically going to write public first because it allows me to look at the thing for the first time and know what's public and what's private with a quick glance. I was going to say the same thing, but for me, it it's, yeah, it's just that's the way I've seen it done. That's the way... When I was writing Java in college, that's the way they showed us to do it. And that's the way I've always done it since then. So I didn't have a good reason for it. Yeah, I, I did the same way. I didn't even know you could put static before public. And I always put the access modifier first. And the reason I put the access modifier first is because auditing is such an important task when it comes to access modifiers. You need to be able to go through your code, make sure that every single member of a type has been audited, that it is intentionally public or not public, whether it's internal. And by putting it first, it lets you scan down the left column and it puts it in a known place. And if you want to be strict about this, you will always use the word internal 
rather than just going with the default because you will know that every item has been audited rather than overlooked. Now, how do you draw the distinction between audited and overlooked? For example, like, like what does being explicit give you? You can use var x. That, let's say that's a member, okay? Var x defaults to internal access. If the internal keyword isn't there, you can't tell if that person made that internal intentionally or they simply forgot to, to add an access modifier there. If you always include internal keyword as the first thing, then you know that is a deliberate choice. It cannot possibly be an error by omission. No, that's a, that's a good point. You're, you're explicitly saying, I want this to be internal, not just I'm being lazy and just want to do this fast as thing. I, I should admit, that's probably the right approach for at least larger projects where you're working with other developers, but I, mm -hmm. I rarely do it myself. I just kind of, I kind of leave it for cleanliness, which, you know, I, I think if you're being strict about things, I probably would do it more explicitly. And that's why understanding the context of style is so important. Again, are you going to be publishing for others? Are you working in a group? Are you just doing your own code? Is this a hobby project? Is this something that's going to be open source and then put onto GitHub where, you know, there are potentially many consumers of this? All of these things help guide your decisions about how much style you want to introduce and what kinds of styles you should consider. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, but the challenge is a lot of the things we're talking about can incite terrible wars within your team. Like everything we're talking about can just be argued for you know, immensely and you know, definitely bike shedding because either way would be fine. You know, the world would go on, we'd write code, we'd ship it, it'd be great. How do we avoid just getting mired into these, these style guide wars, which can happen easily, well, very easily? Buy a book that talks about it. And you go section by section saying, okay, we're going to go with option A here, option B there. Oh, she's really in favor of option C here. Let's do that definitely. And then have a style sheet. And the second you adopt a style sheet, you fix it. You say, this is how our house rules work. And everything going forward conforms to this style sheet. So why is it important for it? the team to adopt a style and everyone use it? For one thing, it sets up an anti-turbulence system. Code moving from one person to another person only has to focus on correctness, on design, on expectations. It doesn't make you look at the minutia. Everybody uses the same style. It may be things that you think are a little bit silly in some cases, or things that, you know, you would have gone a slightly different way, but it's an agreed upon contract. So now your conversations aren't about left aligning colons. Your conversations are about the code. Your reading no longer has to think about all the details of how it's laid out. You can read through the code and your only interest is actually the code itself. It takes you out of the bother 
of the structure of the thing and lets you live where, you know, true development is supposed to happen, which is in the taking of concepts and turning them into algorithms. Well said. We, we, we should point out that the conversations may not be concerned with the place of the colon, but your pull request definitely will be, at least starting out. <laughs> have your fights early, and then you never have to worry about again. I guess that's one thing that I'm wondering about, is what is the ultimate outcome that you're looking for from this? Is it a style guide, or is it just having had the conversation so we understand why people are doing what they're doing? No, I think everybody should have a style guide. If there's, especially if there's a multi-person, you know, system involved and or they're doing open source. So long as there's a connection between people, a style guide, no matter how weird, and trust me, I went and I interviewed so many people and some people do some such ridiculously weird stuff but it's okay because they're consistent and if i'm reading their code and i know their style then i can live with it and let me give you an example of one of these weirdnesses take the colon in type declaration where would you put the colon and I'm talking about something as simple as let x colon integer, you know, int type equal to. Where does the colon go? Right after the variable. The no verb? <laughs> What's the verb? No, right after the variable. X. Oh, the variable. Well, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> okay. In some cases, some of the developers I interviewed, they put it next to the, the type. They say that the colon, the role of the colon, I'm not, I'm not promoting this, by the way, but the role of the colon is to establish a type. Therefore, the semantics between the colon and the type are far stronger, and things that have a greater semantic association should be closer to each other. So there are Swift coders out there who will do let x space colon int space equal space two. This is madness. Uh, yeah, I, I, I find it completely <laughs> weird. But there's a reason there. It's Good rational. One. And when I read these people's code, and I know three different people who do this, and they do it, you know, in a variety of languages, it's consistent. It's a consistent reading experience. I don't have to think about it. I will look down on these people. I will have disdain for them, but I will be able to read their code. I agree. The only thing worse than a bad code standard is no code standard. Mm -hmm. So with like different languages, if I'm on a team and there's no real style guide, what I've done in the past, I've just forked one of the ones out there. Objective-C, I've, I've just forked New York Times. Early Swift, I would do Ray Winderlich. Does your book provide like a quick start way of doing that, or do you have to kind of dig in and tweak every little thing? You know, I decided not to do that, and I this book has sort of been on my back burner for a couple of years now, and I just really felt Swift didn't know what it was as a language yet, 
and I wasn't ready to make decisions. So I kept keeping notes and I kept talking to people and reading their code and trying to see how the language was developing. And it wasn't really until Swift 3 and people had enough experience in Swift 3 to have really strong opinions about it that I felt comfortable starting to write this. And initially, it was just going to be a style guide for myself. And so I figured, okay, maybe a page or two. And then it became a pamphlet. And then it became, you know, like a chapter. And then it started getting really, really big. And I realized I didn't just want a style guide that says, do this, prefer that. I wanted to write about why. I didn't want to go to anybody and say, here is a style guide for you to adhere to without being able to justify every single recommendation. And in, it, in the process of finding those justifications, the process of finding those reasons, it really made me understand Swift better, understand what it is as a language, where it's going as a language. And I thought that that process plus all the you know various decisions that came out of it and all the guidance, I thought it was really kind of fun. And the feedback I'm getting from early readers is that they are, you know, kind of amused and enjoying just the process of not just looking at things, but kind of challenging their assumptions of how you should do it and what matters and what doesn't matter. I think the only thing that a majority of people really agree on is that semicolons are stupid. <laughs> yes, I'm glad they're gone. Uh, what about tools? Do you recommend using linters and um, formatters and stuff like that? I absolutely love linters. Linters catch things that people never do. The human mind gets too close to the code it builds, and linters can just automatically pick up a lot of things about style and fix them for you. And while I wrote my own linting thing, I wrote it because I was trying to explore style. I wasn't actually trying to write a linter. And I think probably the best effort for uh, linting is coming from the Realm guys. What's that called? Swift Lint? Yeah, I think it's called Swift Lint. And it's uh, JP, and I hate to pronounce his last name wrong. I think it's something like Simard. Simard? Yeah, he's been on the show before. Does he speak with an accent? <laughs> I honestly don't remember. No, no, <laughs> no really. Yeah, he but the the, the name it, it surely doesn't sound the way it, I, I read it in my head what about formatters you didn't do you find those can be useful or especially on a team maybe where you, everyone has to use the same format I'm not really that familiar with formatters to be honest can you give me an example um, I can't think of a particular one off offhand but there are there are tools out there um, you mean the ones like the ones LLVM people use for wrapping? That's that's a fundamental part. I mean, like app code lets you specify the style of your your formatting of your code with all kinds of detail. Um, I tend are, to stick with Xcode and just the defaults because that's what most of the people who read my stuff tend to use. And I try to live in that world. 
Do you have uh, conversations that people should have as far as the styles in their tests? Yes and no. I think that testing is a fundamental part of writing correct code. I think that the the test style is something I really don't touch on because I think test-driven development just didn't fall under my umbrella. So I'm going to very courteously say that's an exercise best left for the reader. But it's a really good question. So Erica, anything else about Swift style that we haven't covered that we should get to? I don't know. I could talk about style for days. So I hope people buy it. It's been picked up by Pragmatic Press, and it should be out December-ish. And I had fully, as I said, intended it for be a very short thing, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Pragmatic was kind enough to pick it up. So I'm working with um, my development editor, and we are editing the draft. I just got a whole load of technical review back from lots and lots of coders who have very strong opinions about what I wrote. And so I'm in the middle of updating the text so that it really reflects even more viewpoints. That's awesome. That sounds like it'll be live right about the time this episode goes goes out. It will make a perfect holiday gift. For the whole family. If For the whole coders. family, yes. And because <laughs> uh, Pragmatic has their beta program, they do allow you online access before the book is actually printed because the book itself cannot be printed until, you know, early, mid-January, just the realities of dealing with physical production. So the beta version, which they do, you know, sell as an online ebook, will hopefully be there right there in December. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to checking that out. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Rod, do you have some picks for us? I just want to pick... Erica's books, her books go into really great detail on lots of topics that aren't covered in other books. I really appreciate that. So that's, that's just, that's my pick. Oh, thank you. How about you, Jane? All right. I've got a, I've got one pick. So I know this will happen to all of you where you're at a party and someone puts on some tunes, some heavy metal, and you're having a conversation. You're not sure if it's doom metal. Like brutal, brutal death metal, technical death metal, or brutal, brutal technical death metal, and that's totally embarrassing. You know, I've been there. We've all been there. Well, what can you do? Well, there's a site called EveryNoise.com, which allows you to drill into different genres, and it will give you examples of the genre. And you don't have to go into uh, into death metal or heavy metal. They have a uh, post teen post teen pop, uh, industrial metal, Italian disco. So if you wanted to. Check out what Italian disco is. Deep breakcore? What is that? I don't know. Um, deep Danish pop? Who knows? Uh, everynoise.com. Uh, do not go to the site if you have something to do within the next you know, day or two. Because you will be, you'll be checking out Russian pop and minimal wave. <laughs> but anyway, everynoise.com. Check it out. It's definitely worth trying. Brings you back to the days of Napster, when you can just try different stuff and figure that out. But uh, very cool. So check it out, everynoise.com. All right. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is 
I got the conferences up for next year. So if you're interested in iOS Remote Conf, go check it out at uh, iosremoteconf.com. So I'm also going to pick a tool called Toggle. It's T-O-G-G-L. I recently hired a business coach to help me kind of level up on some stuff. And she recommended it to me and told me to use it to keep track of all the stuff that I'm working on. So if you go to toggl.com, you can enter the tasks that you're doing. And as a contractor, I hated tracking time. I also worked for a consultancy at one point, and I hated tracking time for them too. But as it turns out, it's kind of important if you want to figure out where your time's going and what you're spending it on and what you shouldn't be and what you should be. So I recommend to people that they use a tool like Toggle to track their time for a few weeks and see where your time's going and get a good idea of what you can improve on. So yeah, that's my pick. Erica, do you have some picks for us? I do have some picks. And these are all apps that have moved out of App Store and are being sold by third-party developers for the Macintosh. And I just wanted to give them a little bit of um, promotion because I use them all all the time. And I'm just really happy that they're able to stay in business and I want them to stay in business because I like their products. So they are Spam Seed, which I just installed a few weeks ago because Max Sierra, its mail is doing a terrible job of junk filtering and I just couldn't live with it anymore. So I went out and I bought Spam Seed and it's really, the training was not pleasant, but now that it's trained, it's doing a really fabulous job. And I use that for two and it works great. My my bell box is back under control. So Sierra was traumatic, but I'm back to normal. Another one is Keyboard Maestro because I have everything on my Mac, alias to Emacs commands. And this lets me use Emacs commands no matter what app I'm in. So that's another one. And the last one is a Better Touch Tool which lets me do really weird touch combinations on my MacBook Pro's touchpad. And I'm just happy that I can do things like special hold-in taps and other things that are not built into the system and have those just as customizable as my keyboard macros. And that's been a real benefit to me for getting work done. I I have to ask, how do you do Alt-F in Xcode? The Emacs, the word forward. Command F? Uh, no, the Alt F, like the word forward. The Emacs command. Oh, you mean Control F? Um, it's go, built in. Well, Control F you is forward one character, and Alt F is forward one word. Oh! Which is broken in Xcode, starting like Xcode 5, and I never be able to get to work. Works on everything else, but... Uh, <laughs> Xcode broken like version 5 or 6 and they haven't fixed it. For most of those things, because honestly, I haven't touched my macros for years. My macros know how to make things happen. My fingers know how to make things happen, but it doesn't go through my head anymore. It's all muscle memory. But the way you set those up is you use the arrow keys and use Keyboard Maestro with arrow keys. And so you set Option F or whatever it is that you're doing to do to the right um, keyboard combination with the arrows. And I know, for example, command V, which is page down and option V, which is page up. I mean, it's like my fingers know what to do. 
And then I figured it out once. And once, once you figure it out, it's, you know, it's in your macro set. So you never have to think about it again. This is true. I still got the muscle memory where I type those weird Fs all over my Xcode because I don't have keyboard maestro. So awesome. That's worthy for me. You can remap those, Jane, in Xcode's preferences. Maybe. I'll try it. The Xcode keyboard binding panel is really amazing. So two things that I have specialized there are F8 and F9. Not that you could ever use those on a new you know, MacBook, but <laughs> so long as they continue to exist, I have one that executes playgrounds, which is F8, and F9 toggles between rendered layout and uh, raw markup. Sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Well, if people want to, I'm going to push us to the end of the show. If people want to follow you, see what you're doing, check you out on Twitter or anything like that, what do they do? On Twitter, I'm Erica Sadoon. And my website is ericasadoon.com. And pretty much I have zero imagination. So if you want to contact me on any other service, you can probably guess how to. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this show up and we'll catch everyone next week. We'll see you.